From the Oxano Podcast Network, welcome to My Ministry Breakthrough, hosted by me, Brian Rose. This podcast is all about pastors sharing unfiltered stories of moments large and small, of times when the fog of ministry chaos clears and breakthrough clarity happens. There is a stronghold that exists in our church uh, around somewhere, somewhere along the way, we elevated justice to a point where um, there, there, it created some kind of culture where it came off that we cared more about justice than we did about Jesus. Um, and internal or external? Is that impression to the community and other church leaders, or is it internal among our people? I think it's inter- it's internal among our people, and we have we have there. I can point to a million ways in which that actually isn't true, but it it continues to be an experienced reality for people internally. When was the last time you were really passionate in your calling as a pastor or church leader? I'm not talking about getting riled up during a Sunday morning sermon, but a moment when you lost sleep over a conviction you held deeply, when you were last moved to tears by the brokenness in your church or even your community. What was it that God used to call you into ministry to begin with? Are you still that leader? In this episode of My Ministry Breakthrough, a young leader passionate about the gospel of Jesus and the disciple-making call that he gave us shares his heart on church programming and community influence. Doug Paul is a pastor at East End Fellowship, and he oozes vision for doing life with and seeing the gospel transform people in his diverse Richmond community. Doug lives this calling every day. He and I talk about what disciple-making really looks like for East End and how they are stewarding the tension between social justice and personal salvation in a deeply outward-focused church. Doug shares his heart on leading in the local church from the millennial generation. In fact, Doug may just be my favorite millennial church leader. So lean in and listen up to Doug Paul, pastor at East End Fellowship, Richmond, Virginia. You're in Richmond, right? Yep, I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I... I actually grew up here and I've been in other cities and different spots in ministry and for, for college and whatnot, but eventually came back about uh, three and a half years ago. Yep. And you're on staff at East End Fellowship, that correct? Yes. So I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm on staff there, been on staff for three and a half years. Tell us about the church. Yeah. So it is, I mean, the best way to put it is it is, it was an accidental church plant. About okay. eleven years ago. How does that happen? Because you know, is that like in the in the parable of the seeds? That's the one that kind of fell off to the side, and nobody yeah, really and you're like, whatever, like, whatever happened to that seed? Yeah, 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 yeah. we're that, we're we're that one from Matthew thirteen. How do you be an a- accidental church plant? Tell yeah, me. I mean, like the long story short is there was a there's a, a small group of people that were all um, the, the neighborhood that we live in is really uh, is really poor, okay. and. So we've got the sixth highest concentration of poverty in the United States in our neighborhood, about 36,400 people who live here. And it is, uh, yeah, everything that you would think kind of goes with poverty, all the, all the societal effects that go with that are very present here. Um, and so, you know, block and a half away from, you know, this window right here, if you just walk down that road on the other side of that window for a, in a block and a half, there was a murder that happened uh, maybe a month ago. Okay. Um, and so that's, that's not abnormal. I'm not saying like there are bullets flying every day, but like that's sort of the neighborhood that we live in. And there was a group of people that were serving here 11 years ago, uh, different nonprofits. One was a pastor. Uh, they, some were just neighbors and they were, they were friends uh, with people who were, who were here and had just committed to see that the kingdom of God would come in this neighborhood in a very like tangible way and had a dream of a community that would look nothing like a normal church community. Okay. Uh, in what where, way? What, give, give me a... Yeah, a, I mean, I think, I think the way that they would put it is um, if, if the kingdom of God were to come to East End, like the East End of Richmond, it would be incredibly diverse. Uh, and it would, ha- it would be diverse racially. It would be diverse economically. It would be diverse in like what people's political views are, all that kind of stuff. 
and they, they just they just believed that the the for, that foretaste of heaven should be really tangibly present uh, in this kind of community. So it's not diversity for diversity's sake. It's if the kingdom were here, it would look diverse. Yeah. And so they just made decisions to to be a, a spiritual family together, and they were they, they it just started with having like a Bible study once a month and doing a meal together and praying together and. Over time, those relational touch points just amped up and ramped up. And that ended in uh, the culmination of like a, a weekly worship service. Uh, I, w- it's, I, I guess your ecclesiology would tell you when, when did it become a church? Uh, I don't think it, I think they were a church before they had, a, they had the worship service. But so they- a group of people that were kind of in community and really seeking to, I hate this phrase, but do life together. Because yeah. I think that's all, I think that's all. Horrible phrase, but I think it's as descriptive as we get. I think it's, let me say this. I think it's overused in the church today. Sure. Doing life together. I think it, you know, it is that incarnational ministry. So you guys were just really, really just along the way, right? I mean, it was just, you know, in the everyday life. Yeah, yeah, it was. Somebody brought a guitar or something and it became a worship service. What happened? Yeah, what happened was, so they had multiplied the number of Bible studies that were happening. And then they shifted away from Bible studies to community groups because, you know, that's what you do, apparently. And I mean, there were probably seven or eight. What's the difference in a Bible study in a community group? I mean, man, I don't know. I wasn't here. So I'm I'm kind of speaking. Yeah, this is before your time. This is before my time. And I don't have to like or dislike any of the decisions that were made. This is just the story, man. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so they they were they had like seventy or eighty people, and it was it was just growing really naturally, like to these groups, because there wasn't any centralized thing that was happening. And there's this guy named Dr. John Perkins. I don't know if you if you've heard of him or not. He um, has really been uh, pretty formative in like the community development, Christian Community Development uh, Association, and. He just, he's actually in his last year of public life and has been a huge voice around racial reconciliation. And he had heard that some stuff was, was happening that was pretty, just really interesting in, in the East End of Richmond, which is where all these people were. And so he came, spent a lot of time with them. And he, at the end, he kind of blasted them uh, and basically said, look, this is great that all this is happening, but until, like, you actually need a public witness Wow. Uh, that says we are the body of Christ unified together doing this thing. Because what they had been doing was everyone was going to their own church in, on Sunday mornings. And then they would have these Bible studies on Sunday afternoons. And so it was, it was him basically saying like, it's great that y'all are working together. It's great that y'all are praying together. When yeah. are you going to formalize a public witness as the body of Christ? Why was that public witness important? Did he give Did he give kind of a, did he give kind of a, a reasoning behind why this was important? I, you know, I, I don't, I, I, again, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But the way that, at least listening to the people talk about it, it was, it was a way of casting like all of your lots together okay. with one group of people as opposed, like, because you had, you had these people that were going to different churches that, that all looked like you had a group of people that were all going to a black church on a Sunday morning and a different group of people that were all going to a white church on a Sunday morning. And then they would serve together, have Bible studies together, but their, their church identity was still primarily found in what was happening on these Sunday mornings. I'm not saying it's good, right, wrong. I'm just saying, actually, I would say like that that isn't where your church identity is found. Yeah. Um, It should have been primarily in this other thing. And so I think he was probably getting at more of a paradigm shift. How do we shift? so that you place your primary church identity within this group of people who are on mission together. Yeah. Yeah. Within this group of people who, who are, you know, in, in close community in close relationship uh, that, that becomes maybe the greater form of Christian fellowship, the body of Christ than a group of people who you sing a few songs and listen to a sermon together. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I don't mean to be crass or put down. I mean, I'm just sure. saying, hey, listen, what if, what, if that, what if the church emerged from that model versus from, you know, let's, let's have that. So, so somebody literally did just bring a guitar to one of these Bible studies and it became a church then. Not exactly. I think, <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, I think there were guitars. Like, I do too, remember right? this guy named Murray who yeah, yeah. he would, 
sometimes bringing a guitar to one, some of these Bible studies and they would sing. It was, yeah. I mean, it was just more of like what you would think a house church would be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think they eventually like just plan like, hey, we should, let's just start doing this once a month. Yeah. And they do a, a bigger gathering and it was like big tent. Anyone can come. We have no doctrinal statements. We have no this or that or the other. And it kind of popped um, from, uh, fr- from like people just started coming to it because it was maybe because it was weird or interesting. It was an outlier within the city and, and things like that. So uh, where's, they, where's East End today? Give us a snapshot of the church today. That's 11 or so years later. Is that right? Yeah. So the church today is, is hyper-focused on one, like in, a, in church terms, you would call it a parish, but like it's just, just two square miles. And okay. everything that we do is focused on those two square miles aside from like planting churches or sending out missionaries. Uh, within the city of Richmond. And so, you know, we've got four or 500 people uh, okay. who are part. We meet at uh, like where we have our, our large gathering worship service. We meet in like a local uh, theater that has been renovated. And then we've got house churches, uh, which are, I mean, for those of you who might be familiar, like are, are called missional communities. And we've got, you know, about yeah. a dozen of those that are, that are spread around uh, that, that uh, the neighborhood. So we've, I don't know, we've got maybe, one and a half, two percent of the population uh, who are part, who are in that neighborhood, who are part of our church right now. What's the uh, what's the rhythm of gathering between the large gatherings and the house church gatherings? Give me a give me a feel of that. I mean, it's it's once a week. So we've got okay. at this point we have a worship service that we do once a week on uh, Sunday afternoons, and then we have the house churches are going to be meeting once a week. Yeah, and Why we're, you- we're really trying to like focus on those two vehicles, those two, we talk about like the dual expression of the church that we see in scriptures and those things being like integral and and relating to each other. I I like how I'm like using my hands. Yeah. Unpack that a bit (laughs) and you can feel free to use your hands even more. Thank you. Yeah. Cause Um, everyone can see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We can definitely feel it. Um, Yeah. Unpack those two, the two, you know, those two pieces you guys see in scripture. What's the, how do you guys explain that? How, Talk, talk to me about it like as if I was just kind of coming in new. Sure. And I, was wanting to, I was wanting to jump into Easton. How would you describe uh, your worship in your body there? Yeah, I think the way that we'd say it is if you look at like the, the key texts that are either describing the church or texts that are written to the church about the church, uh, in, in almost every place you're going to see like this core DNA of, of like temple and home or large gathering and home. Yeah. And so, I mean, we think about just the classic text in Acts 2, I think it's verse 46, where it says like every day they met in the temple courts. So we know Solomon's colonnades, like a giant shed, thousands of people can be outside of there. And every day they met in their home. So like every day they're doing both of those things. Uh, and then Paul talks about this when he's writing to the Ephesians uh, in Acts chapter 20, or he's, he's talking to the Ephesian elders when he's about to leave. And he says like, you know, you know how I've lived in my rhythms with you where yeah. it's like every day, like we've done this together and every day in the homes we've done this together. And so it just, and then just like historically speaking in the church, like whenever there's been an opportunity, the church has met in some sort of like larger worship space. And then the church has met in smaller worship spaces that, that have been like, it, we just recognize that human beings have like different relational interactions in different size spaces. So that's, those are the two that we really focus on. And then like, we've got, like there's discipleship that happens. That's um, that we spend a lot of time developing, but those happen a little bit more organically in our house churches. Like all of our house church leaders have been uh, trained for a, a very particular kind of like multiplication, multiplicative discipleship process that we use. And that's and happening you, in our house churches. Give me, give me just a snapshot of that multiplicative discipleship process. Yeah. So yeah, so for us, it's um, we, we just think a lot about how what the Great Commission talks about and is envisioning, and that Jesus doesn't have a plan B. That's like one of our core yeah. pieces of language, like no plan B. Like if we aren't if we aren't good at making disciples who make disciples, what the heck are we doing? Yeah, like if there's anything to be good at, anything for us to be good at, it is making disciples who make disciples. Dallas Willard talks about how every every church needs to be able to answer two questions. What's our plan for making disciples? It does our plan work. And so that, that's where so much time and energy for us has been put in is really coming up with a simple model for discipling people that would also, while they're being discipled, train them to go and disciple others. So part of that is 
in order for someone to be discipled, they have to agree at the beginning of the time to right. go and do the same thing for other people. If anyone would take a, I mean, it's that if anyone would, yeah. would, would come after me, that sure. if moment um, is that agreement, right? How, how do you guys know your plan works? I mean, I, you know, come back to that Dallas Willard quote. Sure. Um, how do you guys know it works? Do you guys have a set of measurements? Marks, we do, yeah. Um, so part of this is we've, we've got some really core language and tools that we've developed. Um, one is called the five foundations, which are um, five key things that every disciple needs to be engaging with that is going to shape that relational life with Jesus. So if we put that in vision frame terms, you would say those are mission measures? Uh, I would say those can be part of mission measures. Okay. Uh, we, we've done it a little bit differently. Um, we have metrics that we, we've actually just finished the vision framing process yeah. in, our, in our church. And so we've got some specific things that we talk about with our mission measures that integrate those, but are a little bit different. We can talk about that in a second. Yeah, yeah, that's um, So part of it is like recognizing that like character, the character of Jesus is formed from being in relationship with Jesus. And then we've got the competencies of Jesus. Jesus was actually really good at some stuff. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just hang out and do nothing. It was like the disciples are sent out really quickly. And I think we sometimes miss that. Like when we hit Luke nine and Jesus is sending the disciples out two by two to heal people, drive out spirits, raise the deads, cleanse the lepers, proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. They've been with Jesus for like no time at all. And we want to shelter people for like 25 years and make sure they have perfect character before they send, we send anyone out. And so we've, we've like identified some really key things that every disciple should know how to do. And those actually come from, um, we call them the fivefold skills. So they're, they're the, some of the core competencies that we would see in Ephesians 4 from the, the, the ministry of Jesus from Apest. So what, what is the core thing that an apostle knows how to do? What is the core thing an evangelist knows how to do? What is the core thing a teacher knows how to do? And, and, and those are the things that we use to like shape people and to teach them how to do. So we don't just talk about being a disciple. We actually teach people how practically to do these things. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's um, a key point of breakthrough for a lot of church leaders. I think everybody says we need to make disciples. Everybody talks about disciple-making process systems, but in the end, they really just mean another class or another yeah. programmatic event. And so for you guys to push beyond that, to say, hey, here are the, here's the character, here's the competencies, you know, here's this, this you know, formational thing, I think that's huge. And I think, I think it's, I don't know why that escapes us sometimes as church leaders. Yeah, I think, I think it has, it has a lot to, it's, it, I don't know that it escapes us so much as it's just not what we learned or what we grew up with or what we taught. Like most pastors that I know and that I work with and are friends with, like we all signed up to like get in on the revolution of the kingdom of God, to see people's yeah. lives change and for the kingdom of God to advance. And somewhere along the way, we got suckered into running a church. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's not bad. It's just that like we, we're all sort of a prison. We're all in prison by our own experiences. And if all you've really experienced is programmatic church, that's, that's the vehicle that you know how to use. Very few people have actually experienced like, life-on-life -life discipleship in, in the process that would teach you to go and do the same for other people. And so, like, it's, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an opportunity for us to do a little bit of reimagination for that and to go back to that original call of, like, why did we become pastors in the first place? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't to run programs that may or may not change people, which I think most of us, like, post-reveal study, yeah. Which is now like 12 years old or something would say, oh, this like programs don't change people. Like, and in fact, the more mature people are the ones who are most likely to leave the church. Right. Uh, and so I think that's, that's what we've spent a lot of time just pressing into was like, if, how do we, how do we actually disciple people? Yes. Using the vehicles that we have, but there's got to be this releasing thing in the culture where people are taking spiritual responsibility, both for like being a disciple as well as making disciples, where it has to be normal. Like culture is whatever is normal for a group of people. We say that all the time. 
And so what we want to be normal here is every single person is in a discipling relationship and every single person is making disciples. And so going back to like the original question, sorry, this is a personal like passion point of mine. Going back to like that, the original question or like, how do we know if it's working? Like, well, one of those things is, are the people in discipling relationships, let's, let's talk about like the transformation that's happening on the inside. Like what's happening. Um, and, and there are like specific questions that we can ask around that. But also like how many generations of disciples are we making? And so we really kickstarted this maybe three years ago and we're now into our third generation of disciples. So like disciples who are making disciples who are now making disciples. And for us, we're really thinking through the diversity of that. Like, is that, are those homogenous groups? Are they all like white people with white people and black people with black people? Um, or are they, are they mixed uh, both racially and socioeconomically? That's just, it's not everything for us, but that is a lens that we're, we're thinking through. Um, if I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm resonating with this and I'm saying, yes, this is what we need. Yes, this is where my heart is and was, but now I'm in kind of this programmatic, you know, jail cell on some levels. What would you recommend as kind of a first step or a, or, or a direction to head? Is there, is there a book? Is there a particular set of resources that inspire you guys? Is there something that gives you guys some context that someone who's on the outside looking in who says, yeah, I want that, that, that helps them take a first step as however small it may be? Yeah. I mean, for me, so I became a Christian when I was, when I was 23 and like really early on, like the thing that attracted me more than anything else, because uh, I kind of, we talk about the accidental church plan. I feel like I tripped into Jesus as well. Yeah. I, it's, I, I just woke up one day and I'm like, crap, I think I'm a Christian now. Like it wasn't, I didn't have like a, a big come to Jesus moment. It was, I'd been an atheist and I'd walked down this journey somehow. And I just woke up and I was like, oh, wait, it is possible that the whole of my life is now oriented around Jesus. Like that all of my core practices are arranged around Jesus and his practices. And so for me, it was like the idea around like discipleship was hugely personal to me coming to faith. Um, and so f- kind of waking up that day, there, there are kind of like three books for me that were hugely instrumental in everything that we've been doing. And first is the Bible, shocking. Uh, the that's second, a good place to start. It's bro. a decent place to start. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's going to, I think it's going to, over time is going to hold up. I think the Bible. Yeah. Gonna- I, I mean, like, yeah, but read the gospels and then like all the book of Acts is, is a group of people who are like, Hey, what would happen if we took Jesus seriously? Yeah. Like what they took him actually, at his word. Like they if, thought if he was being literal. we did right? exactly what he literally said to do what would happen? And that's just what they did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean like Jerusalem. Okay. We've kind of got Jerusalem. Let's go to Judea. Okay. You know, now we're going to go to Samaria and then, oh yeah, this uttermost parts of the world thing. Yeah. We got to get out there. Who's going to get out? Oh, Paul, man, get out there, bro. Yeah. It's and, and, and I mean, you like stitch together like Luke nine and 10, like when he's sending them out two by two and the things that they're doing is they're doing that. And then you go to acts eight and it's the first time the church explodes because of persecution. And it says they're scattered yeah. and like some all the way, like in far distant places. But then you read about what it is that Philip and these other people are doing. And it is literally the exact same things that Jesus first sent the 12 people to do in Luke chapter nine. And it's like, oh, they, they just did. Like when Jesus said, teach them to obey everything I taught you. They just did that. Yeah. Um, sorry, rabbit hole. So it, it was the Bible. We should really read that. Maybe take it seriously and do what it says. Um, but then it was Robert Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism and yeah. then Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. Um, so you, I, if you're talking to a pastor, you'd say, hey, listen, to reconnect with that, with that essence of what we're in this to begin with, that essence of you know, that, that, the, the heart of disciple making, right? beyond the programs, but to the people and really kind of make those two books alongside, you know, the Bible. Yeah. Those were, those were the ones that so hugely informed what it is that like that that we've been working on. And, and I think, so that that's the, the last three years have been here at Easton fellowship and we're in like third generation discipleship, but we, we, we started some stuff like this, like long ago. And 
we got to a point with, with one, with one group that we had started, um, it got into seven generations of discipleship, which were at that point, then thousands of people who were making disciples and we weren't able to count anymore. Like we couldn't, because it wasn't all, a lot of the people were at one church, but a lot of people weren't. And it was starting to spread into like outside of like the city that we were a part of and starting to move into other places, which it was, it was like pouring gasoline and lighting a match. And we, we just stopped counting after seven generations and like 4,000 people because we couldn't yeah. count anymore. It was too hard to track. Um, so I think there's, those are the three books that like heavily inform that. I, I mean, Robert Coleman's, that's just a classic, right? Master Plan of yeah. Evangelism is like, hey, what if we did what Jesus said? Um, and what would that look like? Because it, a lot of places in the world, people are doing that and it's really working. <laughs> uh, and turns out like Jesus is the best disciple maker and the best evangelist who ever lives. Shocking. And so what if we, I don't know, like just do what he said for a little while and try to figure that out apart from not, not that programs are bad, but, but just thinking like maybe we should, there's a, there's an integration that can happen uh, with what it is that we've got going on in our churches that can catalyze a movement of discipleship and evangelism. And I think that's what I like, how do our programs inform and catalyze something that goes way beyond just programs? Programs aren't bad, but they're just not everything. Yeah. And that's the, uh, the, the other, the other thing is like, we actually have all the stuff that we use um, and the resources that we have, we give away for free. Um, So if you go to eastonfellowship.org backslash kickstart resources, you can download everything that we have. We, ha- we might have a password on it. I, uh, the password is no plan B to a capital N. And I, is that, I just is that one of your values? Is that one of the organizational values there? No plan B? Uh, it's, one, it's a piece of our organizational language that's a reflection of one of our, one of our values, which is around um, biblical discipleship. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was going to ask, you know, what is there a particular content or curriculum that you guys use? Is there a learning pathway? Yeah, there is. We, we, we created something called Kickstart that yeah. is our yeah. model for discipleship, that it's all about multiplication. Um, and it, it, really ha- it really takes into account the character that we're forming in people as well as the competencies. Like, you should go do stuff. Um, Jesus wants to use you in a very positive way if you will let him, but not at the expense of your character. Let's get back to how you ended up there. What, how did you connect yeah. there this three and a half years ago? What, what was going on? What drew you there? Or did you just kind of uh, accidentally end up? You've been using the word accidental. I, I, in my mind, <laughs> so much of in the my life mind you kind of wandered accident. into a theater one afternoon. I was like, hey, I'm a part of this church now. Not exactly, <laughs> but it's not maybe wholly. Like the, uh, the long story short was, I mean, I'm from here. And so we, we come back you know, once or twice a year, I was uh, helping to lead uh, this really large church in uh, like the Fort Myers, Naples area called Summit Church in Florida. And, you know, just coming back and visiting. And I I had a friend here who was one of the pastors who was, who had helped, I use the word start, but accidentally start the church here. And we were just grabbing coffee one day and he was saying they were talking, uh, he he was probably going to be transitioning out. Uh, There was a church that he had been sort of working at that had been really helpful in, in funding and influencing the church and the senior pastor was leaving and he ended up taking that position. And so he was at, he was kind of like gauging my interest in that. And the position that they were talking about, I was like, this doesn't, that's like two, two and a half jobs smushed together into one job. And I've just never seen anyone quite like that before. Like it's, yeah. you're asking for like an organizational wizard and someone who knows a lot about like leadership theory and multiplication and missional communities and can do pastoral care. And, and it's like, I don't, and at the end of the day, this is what all small to medium sized churches have, right? You just need, you're trying to get a Swiss army knife of a pastor who can do a little bit of everything. Yeah. I, the five tool pastor, if you put it in baseball terms, you know, there really is no five tool pastor. They can throw. They can, yeah, yeah. yeah. They can field. You know. They can. You know. But there, there really is no five tool pastor, right? No, there really is really no. Is. You know, despite the appearances of some of these mega mega personality pastors, there's there's really no one that has all five tools. No, there re- genuinely aren't. Like we're all, in, in many, just like 
any sport, any sport, if, if a church is really thriving and flourishing, it is the result of a team-based mm. approach. And there's oftentimes one person who gets more credit than the rest, unfairly so probably to the rest of the team, but that's, it's the, uh, it's always a team, team-based sport. So we, we, <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's, that's, I'm not really interested in that. Um, and we came back for Christmas and I actually went to their Christmas Eve service and it was, uh, if you have you ever read the book, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of like the worst Christmas pageant in the world or so, something like yeah. that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, that was a class. You wasn't, I, I love queen book, right? And it was like how everything falls apart. At yeah. Christmas. Yeah. I, I used to love that book. So I, I, I love that book as a kid Yeah, and their Christmas Eve service was. That, that's what it was. It was score. I mean, like you cannot imagine how many kids we've got in our church. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, and so we go there and it is a mess of a Christmas Eve pageant, but it was the most miraculous, wonderful, beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And my wife and I walked away and we're like almost in tears and we're like, that's kind of what we want our kids to be part of. And it, it was so, it was just magical. And the so best we best Christmas pageant ever. Okay. The be- isn't it crossed out or something? I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I can still see the cover where I feel like the word best is crossed out and it says worst instead. Six delinquent children named the Herdmans who were engaged yes. in misfit behavior for their age, such as smoking, <laughs> cussing, drinking jug wine. There we and go. Shoplifting. They go to church for the first time after being told the church offers snacks. That's the jug wine is where it's at. I just hit, I just hit purchase on Amazon. By the there way. we go. I just, I just bought it. <laughs> it's been so long. I don't even know where that book is. Yeah. So we walk away and I mean, I, it's, it was one of those times where like we both significantly felt the spirit stirring in us about something like completely on the same page and intersecting from one experience. It's so funny how oftentimes my wife and I'll have these experiences and we'll walk away with wildly different experiences, which is probably just true of most marriages. Um, but we both walked away and kind of looked at each other and were like, Hey, maybe I should apply for that job. Yeah. Um, it's like, ah, I don't. And so like, I kind of like reached out and ended up walking through a, a process with them that was really long and really in depth. But in that, in that process, I, I went back and was like, look, this is not, this is two and a half jobs smushed together. And I, I can, I, I can promise you that in, if, if you were to give me the job, I was like, I'm nothing if not honest in these like settings. In three to five years, I'm going to be looking to transition to something like a different seat on the bus. Um, I want to be here, but I, at the end of the day, like I am not going to be long-term able to do all of these different things. And so ironically, we're, we are, we just are finishing that transition now. So October 1st, I stepped into uh, a new role. We've, we've done a, a complete reorg. What's your role uh, now? So I am now the pastor of vision and mobilization, which doesn't sound like anything at all. So like I am, um, I'm really responsible for keeping like, yeah, I was going to go, what, what's that mean? What, what does that mean? I'm responsible for keeping like the vision of the church in front okay. of, I'm, I'm apostolic and apest in front of the church and the strategy constantly moving forward. So in terms of like the vision frame, I will constantly be beating the drum of like, what's our next 90 day goals. We're now at the year mark. What, what is our yeah. new year goal? You're saying you're, you guys are shaping the future through the horizon storyline tool that. Yes, we are. Yep. Man, yep. God dreams. What, and you guys just finished your vision framing work too, right? You're just kind of defining mission and values. We are. Yeah. We, um, we are, I would say we're 99.8% done. We're putting, there's that, you know, there's that like last little bit of crafting yeah. that you yeah. have with language that we're, we're finalizing. Is there any, other than the biblical discipleship value, is there any other language that you guys, that, you know, in this emerging culture, which by the way, very natural and necessary for a church to do on, on regular cycles. So you guys are yeah. in that, sounds like you're in that, you know, 10 to, to 12 year range where, you yeah. know, to beat the plateau, you guys have got to revision. You guys have yes. got to, um, to do that. What, what language in that is, is particularly important to you or have you seen really catalyze you know, raise the room in some ways for some of your folks. Yeah. So, so some of it, we actually stolen, um, <laughs> but oh. has been, but has been really, I mean, I know you're so never supposed to talk about that part. Yeah. 
No, but like we, this, um, for like the mission for us, like we can really drill it down. Uh, we just regularly like every man, woman, and child. Yeah. Uh, every man, woman, child, every man, woman, and child. But when, and, and we're talking about like the East end of Richmond, when yeah. every man, woman, and child to have multiple opportunities to be part of Jesus's spiritual family. Um, and all of those words are actually very carefully selected for yeah. what they mean. I mean, we've been through more iterations and brainstorms of what those words could be. Why was it important for you guys to say every man, woman, and child instead of all people or every person? Yeah, be- part of it is there is a, there's a stickiness to it. Mm-hmm. Um, every man, woman, and child, like everyone remembers that phrase. Everyone remembers that phrase. And it gets to, um, you could say anyone, or you could say everyone, or you could say all people, but it's it somehow like the poetry of every man, woman, and child is both sticky, but it gets to the heart of what it is that we want of, of like, we see people in this mm-hmm. two square miles, these 36,400 people, we could say anyone, or we could say everyone, but every man, woman, and child for us represents this, the heart of God for these people. Um, and it, it's part of it is just like the, the science and the art of language coming together. You're looking for what's memorable and meaningful at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, also from what, we, what we've experienced at Oxano uh, in helping churches craft language like this, there's moments when we move the mission of the organization, that, that focus, or as, as, as Will likes to say, the locus of the mission, we move it off the organization to the individual. We say, yeah. hey, listen, it's important. And so it sounds to me like that for, for you guys, for your congregation, to name every man, woman, and child really brings the burden of ownership to everyone who calls himself a part of East End Fellowship versus yeah. being able to go, man, I really like this. We're here for all people. But that's really, you know, that's really for, for our pastor. That's really for our staff. It's hard to walk down the street and not think of that man, that woman, that child. Um, is, that, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. It also speaks to, I mean, you can't see our neighborhood, but our neighborhood is like this melting pot right now of, yeah. of different people. Like we're like many places we're experiencing gentrification. Okay. Where, I mean, we're in the city where uh, Richmond is where there's more Victorian housing than any other place in the world because uh, we are st- stupid Southerners that we are. And at the end of the Civil War, we chose to burn our city to the ground rather than let the Union Army have anything in it, which meant <laughs> all the houses that were getting rebuilt. If we can't happening. have it, neither can you. Yeah, exactly. Um, like they literally, they burnt the city. They went across the bridge and then burnt the bridge uh, and then fled to Petersburg, which is, it doesn't matter. So <laughs> the, the point is that all these houses are getting built. All these houses are getting built in the Victorian style, which are gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, and now all these people are moving back to the city uh, after like 50s and 60s middle-class white flight. But for us, this was a, actually a middle-class black neighborhood and they fled as well in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Everyone's coming back and uh, you've, you've got housing prices that are like skyrocketing, but they're happening r- literally right beside housing projects, government mm-hmm. subsidized housing. So we've got four court, they're called courts here, um, that have 60% of the people who live in our neighborhood are in one of these housing courts. And it's side by side. And so for us, when we say every man, woman, and child, there is an, like, at the soul of our church is, are we about, like, the image of God in everyone, in everyone? Or are we about, like, the people who are most comfortable for us to reach? And it's, we're about everyone, everyone, every man, woman, and child, be you in a housing court or in a, a, a newly renovated house. And somehow those, those things have to come together within the spiritual family of Jesus for us. What's, um, what's something that is on the, on the radar right now as a result of this mission, you guys are pointing at something, maybe, maybe it lives on your horizon storyline in a one year yeah. or even, even the you know, beyond the horizon, long range kind of visionary ideas or something out there that's tangible in front of your people that says, Hey, this is, this is, this mission is causing us to, to go this direction. Is there something you guys have in front of the people? Yeah. Um, we are I'm trying to think the, let me, let me give a couple of 
different things that we're doing. Uh, one of those is like in, we've created a visual strategy uh, that is part of our, like our napkin sketch of yeah. what it is that we're going to be doing. And we are really having to overhaul some key pieces in our church and say no to a lot of things that we've done in the past like so what, that we like, can say yes to a few things. We've been, I mean, in the same way that we were an accidental church plant, the only way that really works when you say like, we've got a big tent, everyone can be part of this is you have to say yes to everything. And <laughs> right. you say no to nothing. And so there are a million things we were a part of. There are a million things that we were doing and our leaders and everyone in the church were exhausted. And what, what you could see if you looked at the history of the church is these cycles of every three to four years, burnout. And then you'd filter through a new set of leaders, burnout. And these are people, like, I'm not, I'm not talking about like paid staff. I mean, like the leaders of our church. Yeah. And it was because there was this thing in the water. We have to say yes to everything. The need is so great. We say yes, we say yes. And so we've had to really work the vision framing process forced us to say, what is our core DNA? How are we going to strategically and practically orient around that? Which means we have to say no to almost everything so that we can say yes and really be great at a few things. So one of those things is um, we, have, we have traditionally only done quote unquote outreach through our house churches. And that is really, really, th- those are really powerful. Like we're seeing some really great breakthrough in those house churches but we're only seeing it through a certain group of people in our neighborhood. We are missing a giant piece of our neighborhood because of, uh, of that strategy. So we're, we're starting something uh, that we're just calling outreach spaces that will be actually, and ironically, more programmatic. Okay. So, and, and one of the things, one of the big things that we're doing uh, that we'll launch in January this year is an outreach Bible study. I kid you not where we live, because if you're going to be missional, it's just about, all we're saying is how do you, how do you contextualize the mission of God in your place? Right. We, we keep running into these people who are like, hey, we, we just love what you're about. Um, how can we be part of your church? Like, well, you can come to our worship service. They're like, mm, not, it feels a little overwhelming. Well, we have, a, we have these things called house churches. What is a house church? And we try to explain it. Yeah, then it gets a little culty to them, right? They, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, uh, cool. And then, well, maybe. And then they hang up and that's it. It's the last thing you hear about them. But before yeah, they hang up, they'll always ask this, do you have a midweek Bible study? And we're like, no. They're like, oh. And then they hang up, that's it. Yeah. And so we're starting a midweek Bible study because I'm not kidding, every day we talk to people who that is, that is the easiest next step for them to become part of this spiritual family in this neighborhood. Why is that an easy next step? What is it about a midweek Bible study? That- for, for that, for those folks, um, and, and it's not just like one demographic, it's actually a couple of demographics of people. They, have, they do have a positive experience with the church, but they have, they, they, and it was almost exclusively when they were, they were children and then they stopped in their teenage years and they've never come back, but they are really open for whatever reason right now. And for them, the thing that feels accessible is a Bible study mm. for them. And there are a whole host of people for whom that would never, ever be true. But I think one of the things that the missional conversation has done is it is like every other conversation. It is, a, it is meant that we think more about vehicles than the vision. And so we think about the missional, the missional movement is really about like wild decentralization and nothing that looks like Christendom. But actually what it's just meant to be is like, what does Jesus, how, how would Jesus reach these people? And for this group of people, it's a Bible study, man. And so we're, we're doing a Bible study and it might be the most missional thing that we do or have ever done in our church, which is deeply ironic and not lost. In, but what, what really amps me up is like, people are gonna come to faith in Jesus yeah. because of that. I don't care if it's a Bible study. I just care about people coming to faith in Jesus and getting discipled so they can go and make disciples. What's, um, what's one area of East End Fellowship that really needs breakthrough right now? From your chair where you sit, especially in this new season of leadership that you're just a few, as we record this, just a few weeks into, uh, yeah. what's one area that, that needs breakthrough? What's one area you guys are all looking at going and maybe even praying and maybe even you know, saying, okay, God, if, if it be your will, you know, let us get through here. Yeah. There is a, to use 
more charismatic language, there is a stronghold that exists in our church uh, around somewhere, somewhere along the way, we elevated justice to a point where um, there, there, it created some kind of culture where it came off that we cared more about justice than we did about Jesus. Um, and internal or external? Is that impression to the community and other church leaders, or is it internal among our people? I think it's inter- it's internal among our people, and we have we have there. I can point to a million ways in which that actually isn't true. Yeah. Um, but it, it it continues to be an experienced reality for people internally, and I, it's it's not. This isn't an uncommon thing when. Like you, you, you go to two extremes, right? Like on one hand, it's like everyone's just about individual salvation. And on the yeah. other side, the other ditch, it's all about communal justice. And what we're trying to do is to live in the tension of like, it's actually all of that thing. It's the whole of the gospel for the right. whole of this neighborhood. And I think we're trying to, we're trying to really get some spiritual breakthrough around that. Like for the, for the sake of that tension, it needs to be that big a gospel. And I think there are ways in which uh, the, the culture that we've got still looks like we care more about justice than we do about like people coming to faith in Jesus. But the hearts of our leaders, the prayer life of our leaders, if you were to look at our church and like just functionally, like we care about all of it, but there's this, there's something in the water that we need some breakthrough around. I don't, I don't even fully know how to describe it. What are the consequences of that? What are the consequences of that misplaced perspective among the internal people? I mean, what are you guys experiencing as the negative side of, of that feeling, that perception? Yeah, I think some of it would be like, one of the things that I think we're fighting for, the soul of what we're fighting for is, um, do we, do, are we as passionate um, about personal holiness and sin as we are about communal holiness. Mm. So are we, are we as amped up to write about something on Facebook, about something that's the poison in my own life, as I am about like racial injustice or inequity or this, that, or the other? And I mean, the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and we, need, we, need a, we need a softening of our hearts that we are that... Um, we're that malleable to what the Holy Spirit is doing in our own individual lives uh, that, we, that we find our own personal sin is abhorrent as the societal sin that we might see around us. That we would be as moved to yes. demonstrate, as moved to comment on social media, as moved to um, wring our hands about our own yeah. sin, about, the, about what God is working on in our lives as much as we do government as much as we do Absolutely. politics, as much as we do neighborhood dynamics. Um, and I mean, it's worth one, one critical piece of context that I probably should have mentioned at the beginning. The average age of our, of someone in our church is 27. Okay. And so we, we, we're straight up millennial church, right? Millennial and younger homelander oh my or whatever they're called. I'm just kidding. And yeah, <laughs> I'm a millennial. I'm like, do you I'm, guys I'm, do anything but drink coffee on Sundays? I don't even, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Yeah, I'm totally kidding. Whatever. Um, yeah. So I, I, this, this, we are in many ways a picture of the future of the, yeah. the future problems of the church. We are really diverse. Uh, we have all kinds of like passionate opinions about all sorts of things. Some of which are right and some of which are wrong and shaped by macro culture in a way that is wildly unhelpful. In the same way that the generations before us, the same is true. Um, and so I think the thing, this is, this is, this is going to get to the heart of what you're, I think you're at. The thing that we are fighting for right now and the thing that we are saying every week when we're together and hopefully in our house churches as well, is we need to move from being a church uh, that, is, that, that was started in reaction to something and start being a church that is living out of conviction for something. And so many churches start and they're like, well, we're not, I mean, I'm pointing my finger. We're not going to be like them over there. Yeah. Uh, and so the whole of our existence is based on not being like someone else. 
And what we desperately need to be is, this is who God has uniquely called us to be, and we shall not be moved. And I, I think there's a there's a there's just something that we need to grab hold of around that, and uh, in in a way that is not arrogant, like ma- don't make apologies for like this is who God has called us to be. I think that's I think you're right on when there's. And, and you guys are on the leading edge as I process this with you of what church in the next generation is going to look like and, and what the tensions are going to be. I think there's churches that are already feeling that, um, that you know, it doesn't matter what the demographic they're reaching is. If, 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 if we're looking, if we're looking at how the gospel takes root in the next generations, it's going to be wrestling through exactly what the last, you know, five to seven minutes that we've been talking about is. Yeah, and so I really appreciate the fact that that you guys are coming back to. Hey, there's there's a there's an understanding of uniqueness. There's an understanding of a localized missional call, more than a missional movement, but it is an incarnational understanding of what the gospel looks like in my life first, and in the lives of those people that I'm around, and how does that move us? Um, in a unified direction. There's, there's, there's really something I think important in that. And I can't wait to read your book about it. Um, <laughs> just, uh, just the mess of our ministry the, life. The, let us know the, the release date of, uh, of, I guess it's going to be called, it can't be messy church or messy faith. I think those are all taken. They are all taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it would probably be called good luck. Thoughts, <laughs> thoughts from the seller. Yeah. Thoughts the, the, from the seller. You can actually see there's a the, there must be clouds out because there's not as much natural light coming in. You're loving it. I feel it right like now. I am. I feel like I'm a, a flower in bloom, Brian. Well, thanks for thanks for giving us a snapshot of Easton Fellowship. We kind of did a deep dive, and I think I think it's important because you guys are not a suburban church. You guys are in an inner city. You guys are are you know a diverse church. You are a millennial church. Um, there's a lot to be learned. Uh, for all of us as we go about and get better in ministry. I'd like to come back again on a future episode, circle back around to some of the work that I know you're involved in beyond East End Fellowship. I know you're a a part of the New Thing Network and you guys have some really uh, great stuff on the horizon there. Uh, You're a part of Unique and Oxano in a a really kind of cool way and influencing and informing uh, those things. So if, if it's okay, I'd like to have you back and talk less church and more you know, on the broader scope of ministry breakthroughs for you uh, down yeah. the road. Is that cool? That'd be great. The, can I one thing I'd love to do yeah. that right now? Yes. You can get my commitment right now. Thank one you. thing I would love to, I mean, like at another time, we're getting ready to start a, a learning community that's local here in Richmond. It's just Richmond churches. Yeah. And we're going to, it's a year long thing where we're going to be walking them through how to create their own custom discipleship plan. Yeah, for movemental discipleship in their church. And it'll look, I mean, like if you saw the churches, they're wildly different. So I'm super amped to see how that's gonna, yeah, I think it's gonna be rad to see what, the, what that ends up looking like practically. But I'm, when does that start? It's gonna start in January. Okay, okay. January, February. We're, we're nailing down the dates right now, but it'll be interesting to see how that flushes Yeah, we'll out. do some check-ins on that and see how that's going because I think there's, I think there's something in that breakthrough of, you know, that, that contextualized, localized discipleship. Mm-hmm. That, um, yeah. That's huge. Hey, listen, I like to ask three questions on, on, on every podcast of Let's every listener. Uh, what's one daily or regular habit you practice that keeps you close to the heart of God? Yeah, I do. I've got this, uh, <laughs> this thing on my desk. I, I wrote it probably seven years ago. And I, I whenever I sit down, um, I, uh, I look at this note card that I wrote and it's, a, it's just a repackaging of something that Jesus told Peter. Um, and it says, like, I have been praying for, he says, I've been praying for you, Peter, but it's got my name. I've been praying for you, Doug, that your faith may not fail you. Mm. Um, and just spend time uh, each, each day kind of before work, just praying through um, the receiving of that prayer. Jesus has been praying for me that my faith would not fail me today. And, and, and sitting and meditating in that and just allowing the Lord to minister to me wherever the day might be headed or has already started and who knows where it's going. What's, what's one example of the importance of that for you? Is there, is there a moment you can take us back to that was like, man, 
I felt that. I felt that. I felt that alignment. I felt that focus. Honestly, the for us, and this this isn't. Yeah, for us, the vision framing process was really hard um, because because of the way that our church formed. You have a group of people who have different points of view, opinions, yeah. like really like when you're talking about the core DNA of a church and you didn't have core DNA that really started the thing that called them together. There were some like intense disagreements around some of that. And there were days where it's like, Lord, I don't, I, I really don't know how we make it through this intact. And th- I think that was one of those, like, I've been praying for you, Doug, that your faith may not fail you. Yeah. Um, that, that Jesus has the faith for me to keep going uh, and, and to keep leading, even if I don't, like if I don't know the way forward, he does. And so I think even, even within the last couple of months, that's been a really critical thing, at least for me, like in, in the way that I'm leading our church and participating in that with our elders. I love it. I love it. Hey, if you could go back to your first year of ministry and tell yourself <laughs> one thing, what would it be? Oh gosh. Uh, that's such a good question. Um, I would, I would tell myself, I got a piece of advice 10 years into ministry that changed the way that I did ministry. And I wish I would have gotten that advice 10 years before. And it was this, um, what if you, what if everything that you do in ministry um, up until the time you're 55 was training for the ministry that you would do between the ages of 55 and 75. Um, that would radically change the way that I would have done that first year. Cause I was, um, man, I, I was going after it and I was looking to be as successful, quote unquote, successful as fast as possible. And I was running every playbook that I could find uh, to do that, to be quote unquote successful. And as if like I had, I mean, it's just antithetical to the gospel as if I had something to earn or to prove to God or to myself that I deserve to be in this spot. Um, but I think when I came into ministry, there, were a, there was like a crop of rock stars who were all in their early thirties and they got just stuck on every conference stage over and over and over again. And it was like, well, that's who, that's who you got to be, man. And I wish I could unlearn that lesson. Like, I wish I could unlearn that in that first year. Last question. Is there one book you consistently recommend or give as a gift? Yeah, uh, there's, I mean, it's, it's Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy. Yeah, why, why is that important? Not just to you, but for you to, for you to give to someone else. I think it gives a revolutionary picture of the good news of Jesus. And, and a lot, of, a lot of books, a lot of authors will say that they're giving that. Having read most of those books, it is wholly unique in, I think, getting at the revolutionary nature of what it is that Jesus is after in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it, you read chapter five on the Sermon on the Mount and it is, or chapter two on the gospel of sin management, and it is going to blow your freaking mind. I mean, I remember reading it before I was a Christian and be like, why has no one told me this before? And being mm-hmm. angry that mm-hmm. no one had told me the good news before. <laughs> um, I mean, what have they been telling you? What have they been telling you? Uh, they, it, it was the good it, behavior. No, it was like, Hey dude, uh, when you die, you're going to go to hell. Uh, so you should not like go to hell. You should pray and accept Jesus as your Lord and savior. Um, and so it was, it was all about fear and it was all about the future, right? And what Dallas does in that book that was so compelling to me is that he didn't make discipleship optional and discipleship was as like, was the good news. Discipleship was you get to be with Jesus now, experience heaven now, and it will never, ever end. And that was revolutionary good news for me. That was the good news I needed to hear at the, at the moment when like, I, I just needed some good news like that, that life could be different, that I could change. I think it's good news. We all need to hear no yeah. matter the, no matter the journey, no matter the length of time, um, man, Jesus is, is with us now. Right now. 
He is with us right now, and we will one day see him face to face. But we don't have to wait to experience that. We're, yeah, we can experience it right now. Like the good news is as good here in the present. And like the cherry on top is that we, it'll never end. As, as long as we make, the, I'm, I'm sorry. I can, I no, can no, no, you're like, good. You're good. I can talk about this forever, man. Like this is, yeah. Doug Paul. Uh, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. You I'm are. Shut my, up. You're trying to wrap up. You I'm are done. my favorite millennial. Oh, can I say up. that? Got it. You're my favorite millennial. Doug Paul, Easton Fellowship, Richmond VA. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, buddy. Thanks. I look forward to having you back and, and, and hearing more about what God is doing there. Thank you for listening to My Ministry Breakthrough from the Oxano Podcast Network. You can head over to myministrybreakthrough.com to join the conversation and access our show notes, including the books or other resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoy hearing these stories of ministry breakthrough, we would be honored if you would subscribe, rate, and even leave a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.